Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I'm not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. But this week, we're switching our format up entirely. We did this one time for a Patreon and it was my favorite thing in the whole world. Mm -hmm. So this week, Nick has researched and developed a script that he is going to tell me about. And I'm going to get my favorite thing in the world, uh -huh. which is listening to my husband read things out loud. <laughs> okay, great. It's going to be an utter fiasco. I'm going to tell you a mafia story from the Gambino crime family that I first heard about back when I was in high school. Ooh, okay. I'm so excited about so that. So if this is anyone's first time listening to this podcast, welcome aboard. You know, jump in, enjoy it for what it is. But this is not usually how this goes. Usually what happens is Muriel does a very excellent job researching a true crime story, tells me all about it. And it blows my mind. This week, I did a medium job researching a true crime story. <laughs> and I'm going to do a medium job telling that story. Are you kidding? Do not sell yourself short. Today will be really enjoyable for everyone, well, especially I, me. I really want everyone to stick through to the end because the ending is so good. So even if you're like, God, this story sucks or it's not good, just trust me. St stay with us to the end, okay? Okay. Uh, I want to shout out Emily also who requested I bring some mafia stuff back onto the podcast. This is for you, Emily. Emily and Karen both hit up our Patreon this week. We want to thank them both with all of our hearts. We also want to shout out Mario Casolini, my little brother who does the music for Muriel's Murders. He just produced the new single for Joey Cool, who was <gasps> signed to Tech Nine Strange Music Record label out of Kansas City. Uh, the song features John Connor, who's made a ton of music with Dr. Dre. The song is called Thomas Shelby, and the music video is Peaky Blinders themed. So if you're into rap music and or Peaky Blinders, check out the link in the show notes for the music video. Mario Castellini on the beat. Best boy in the whole wide world. The song's a banger. The rapping is great. Uh, check out Thomas Shelby by Joey Cool featuring John Connor. Oh, my goodness. Okay. You're so cool. I'm ready to rock. <sighs> All right. So this is a true story involving what I'm uh -huh. assuming will be yes. murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So yes. if any listeners are like Nick. And unless it's mafia theme, they don't want to hear about this kind of stuff. Uh -huh. <laughs> Please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, uh, you know, I'll be doing a little cursing, a little joking. Muriel probably will, too. I really don't know what Muriel's going to do. She usually uh, is so involved. We'll I see. I don't know. I just can't. I, I feel like I'm floating on a cloud of just bits. Okay, I'm just going to do bits. <laughs> Anyways, we might curse and joke. So if you don't like that, turn us off. All right, Nikki. Are you ready to tell me a story? No! Okay, let's get started. I was ready to hit record, had my all my thoughts together, and realized I did not have my script in front of me. Okay. Well, you're very handsome. Thank I'm very you. excited. Great. Am I starting now? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> it's New York City, <laughs> December 1985, about 5.30 in the evening in Midtown Manhattan. John Gotti sits in a parked car across the street. 
Okay. (laughs) John Gotti sits in a parked car across the street from Sparks Steakhouse with his right-hand man, Salvatore the Bull Gravano, waiting for their boss, Paul Castellano, who's the head of the Gambino crime family, to show up for dinner. Okay. Okay? And they're going to go out. Sparks Steakhouse was a classy joint in a classy neighborhood, and these guys were at the height of power and money. Castellano had turned the Gambino family into something of a corporation. He was making millions from legitimate business while also still entirely crooked, okay? Okay. He also had forbidden any of his people uh, to get involved with drugs. No dealing with drug dealers, no selling drugs, any of that, which was a huge business at the time, and the other families were just cleaning up and getting rich. Uh, so this caused a lot of friction in the Gambino organization. I have a question. Yes. Is this the plot of The Godfather? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a different time period. It's a lot later. Okay. But it's a very similar dynamic. Okay, okay, okay. So, and and Big Paul Castellano didn't want to get involved in drugs for the same reason that... Don Corleone in The Godfather doesn't want to get involved because he's like... the police are going to get him. Yeah, the yeah. feds will start cracking down way yeah. harder. He sees it coming. It's already, you know, it's things are heating up. And Paul Castellano is actually right about this. He's, yeah, you know, so totally was The right. Godfather. Yes. Okay. Yeah, love that movie. Okay. Okay. So anyways, as much as Paul didn't want that to happen and he was super like going into tons of legitimate business, he was still very much running a hardcore mafia organization. And in some ways it was even like ratcheting that up. So he was like forcing all of his dudes to kick up even more money Uh and all this tight control of everything. So he kind of wanted it both ways, right? He wanted to be legitimate and not get involved with, in the get on the feds radar but also he was like still running a mafia organization okay right? okay and this had some of big paul's guys oh my god <laughs> this had some of big paul's castellano's best men going against his rules and selling drugs anyway guys like john gotti okay in fact gotti had been selling so many drugs and was so out of con- control uh that he was like Big Paul's going to kill me for sure, okay? okay? So he was like really suspicious that he was going to get hit. Okay, okay, can I ask some questions? Uh, fuck. <laughs> yes. Okay, so John Gotti. Yeah. Is his own family? No, he's a he works in the he works for Big Paul Castellano. Big Paul Castellano. That's okay. his boss. That's his boss. Yes. But there are different families still around, Yeah, right? there's like still the, the five crime families. The five families. So this is the height of like the New York mafia organization and power in the 80s. So so this is like Godfather 2 when they had like that great, you know, like they're all dancing and that great birthday party and you know what's his You're face right, is in charge. It is like dancing and parties. Okay. But you know what I'm saying, yeah, you know. Then the yeah. senator come to like their kids confirmation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is all correct. Oh, and then that's a horse head thing. I totally it's you're mixing, so similar. Okay, yeah. I mean you're yeah, it's similar. Okay. Okay. Focus. Okay. Great. Okay. So okay. Gambino it does not have his own family. Gambino is the name of the crime family because Big Paul Castellano took over for Carlo Gambino. Gotti is the guy who doesn't have a crime family. Gotti does not. He works for Castel... Yes. Bono. Great. Yeah. Go. Okay. So, as Castellano and his right-hand man, Tommy Bellotti, step out of the limo in (laughs) front of... Tommy Bellotti. Don't laugh at us Italians, okay? (laughs) Don't throw things at me. We'll just do something. Okay. 
They step out of the limo in front of Sparks Steakhouse. John Gotti and Sal the Bull Gravano take out their walkie-talkies and give the word. Four gunmen ambush Castellano and Bellotti, shooting them dead on the street in one of the most brazen hits in mob history. Whoa. Gotti would go on to be one of the flashiest, most iconic, infamous, and final last mob bosses of the old school model. Okay. Okay. So, so he does. So yeah, he kills his boss and he becomes the boss. They go into drug dealing. He becomes a Teflon Don who no, they can't get any charges to stick against. He's walking in and out of court like the big shot. He becomes that guy. Okay. Okay. Because of this hit, which was uh, like the last, there wasn't another mob hit like that for like 30 years. One like just happened. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. okay so, can I ask you something that I, this is just love me. Okay. Okay. You're talking really, really, really fast. Uh-huh. And sorry, I'm having trouble figuring it out. I'm, I'm like <laughs> okay, trying. I'm uh-huh. not trying to do a bit. <laughs> but this is a lightning fast. Okay, okay. Okay, so just. Okay. So there's two dead bodies outside of the steakhouse. Okay. <laughs> One used to be the boss. Okay. Got and, it. And, and the other dead body is his right hand man. Love it. Okay. The p- people responsible for the hit were John Gotti. No, I understand okay, that. <laughs> okay. So there's these two dead bodies. Okay. I feel like you're still talking. But, fast, no, I'm talking slow. But now. you're just talking quieter. No. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay. I'm talking loud and at normal speed. Wait, hold on. Where is I? I lost my place. Okay. Alongside Castellano and Bellotti's corpses should have been a third dead body. Castellano's third in command and Bellotti's best friend, a man named Tom Papania. Okay. But instead of being dead on the streets of New York, Papania was in Atlanta, Georgia, in the throes of a mind-altering, destiny-changing religious experience. What? Yes. Okay. So I first heard Tom Papania's true crime story way back in the late 90s or maybe early 2000s. Okay. okay? This was way before things went viral on the internet. We didn't have smartphones and things still kind of went viral in a like, here's a burn CD kind yeah, of a right. way. Or yeah. like, oh, I have this cassette tape, which is what happened for me. Like somehow someone handed me a bootlegged audio cassette tape of this man's story of a recording. And I listened to it many times. What? Yeah. The recording itself has an underproduced quality and it was a copy of a copy. So it had a real sort of like underground air of authenticity, which of course at the time, like you're like, you know, when you're getting like mixtapes of like punk rock or rap music back yeah. in the day, you're like, Ooh, this is the real shit. Like I haven't yeah. even heard of these guys. Yeah. Whatever, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. So it really felt like that. And it's basically him speaking to like a group of Christians in what feels like a very intimate room and he's like this old school New York Italian and he's just he just tells this incredible story and it's so moving okay the tape is called from mafia to ministry and it's a recording of just his personal life story and his basically his testimony okay it's about an hour and a half long and it's just an incredible portrait of his life climbing the ranks of the Gambino crime family all the way up to third in command then being saved by Jesus leaving his criminal life behind and devoting himself to being an evangelical preacher telling his story and saving souls all over the globe what so why was he in Arizona? I, it's, I said Atlanta. 
Oh, why was he in Atlanta? That's I'm going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole end of the story. Him being in Atlanta. Shit, Muriel. He grew up in fucking Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> okay. So my primary source for this story is Tom Papania himself. Wow. Okay. Back in the day when things were going viral on a word of mouth kind of level you know someone would hand you something you were like this is special like zines or whatever yeah right? well so, and i think you're underselling something what? you were hell nick and i have known each other since high school yeah. you were hella into zines like i <laughs> like i know you're saying like oh everybody was into mixtapes and zines like yeah. you were the king of mixtapes and zines i remember driving around with you yeah. to like art walk in seattle yeah, right. and you were there to like sell zines <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and you used to give me mixtapes all the time i know You'd be I like, know. Listen to this. I yeah. was super into that. I introduced yeah. you and like a couple like cool kids uh-huh. in high school to Zydeco. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody uh, was like, damn, that's crazy. And yeah. I was like, I know. My dad really <laughs> likes this. <laughs> okay. Well, I definitely passed this tape on to some of my friends. You okay. know, this was like in the mix. Oh, okay? really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Here you we- were very cool. Okay. Here we go. Okay. So Papania's parents were married in Sicily. His mother was just 13 when they were married. Ugh. And they moved to Brooklyn with no education whatsoever. He was born in 1950 in Brooklyn and was baptized in one of these gigantic, breathtaking Roman Catholic churches at the age of one month old. Cool. This would be the only church he would ever really be aware of for the first 35 years or so of his life. That's so funny that he would be like, hey, I have What's a church? Yeah, <laughs> that comes up. It totally comes up. So his mother was was an extremely devoted Catholic, always praying with the rosary beads, and Tom grew up believing in God, heaven, hell, purgatory, the whole deal. Okay. But Tom's real forming earliest memories are of his father working two or three menial jobs at a time. They were always broke. His father was never happy. He would just come home, start drinking and go to sleep. His Uh dad basically never did any family type things with them. He never had a memory of him being affectionate or hugging him. He doesn't even ever remember calling him his son. You know, so it was like really bad. The only attention that his dad ever paid to him is when he would beat him horribly with a leather strap. That is crazy. So when Papania was about 10, he realized that his dad would stop beating him basically the moment he cried. Uh Okay. And he developed like this crazy hatred for his father, really like deep in his soul, this hatred for his father. And he started training himself to never cry so he could like deny his father that satisfaction. Yeah. And by the time he was a teenager, he had mastered not crying and would intentionally provoke his father just to laugh at him while getting beaten. That is really horrible and like kind of terrifying. Yeah. And like the, like Like an origin story for a, for like a real life villain. Yeah. So he was basically a hardened and calloused like, like hardcore criminal who convinced he wasn't really a criminal yet, but he was just hardened and callous and he convinced himself he had no tears to cry. And this deep hatred for his father would be the foundation of his self identity for years to come. Whoa. Yeah. It was really like, he was like, had this crazy dark mind frame. Okay. So he's growing up. The family has no money. Uh, Papania is 15 and he's just having like zero fun in life. Like, oh yeah. Life I sucks. mean, it, it yeah. really definitely sounds yeah. like that. Yeah. So he's walking by the railroad tracks one day after school and he stumbles across an old rusty gun. Okay. And he thought it was probably broken. He wasn't, he had never really dealt with guns before. Didn't have any bullets in it. Um, and it just seemed like this old weird thing, but ding, ding, ding. 
he had an amazing idea, which was to use it to go rob a bunch of mobsters at this storefront that used to always That does not seem like a good idea. No, it was great. The plan was flawless. <laughs> Him and his friends would put on masks, point this old rusty broken gun oh, no. at these big time mobsters, take their money, and then go spend it all at the Coney Island, okay? Oh, now, well, that makes... Yeah. Actually, Coney Island is so fun. Yeah. I love Coney Island. Yeah, this, that's what they I wanted to do. Okay, okay, I get it. Okay, so it, 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 he has to convince his friends. They're super scared, but eventually they go along with him. And before he knows what he's doing, he has this old gun pointed at these mobsters. No. And they're handing over money. No. And he realizes, holy shit, there's like 30 of them here. No. And he's just like, what am I doing? Like, I'm going to leave here and they're going to chase us and kill us. So he has another brilliant idea, which is to make them all take off their pants. Because he didn't really know who they were. <laughs> this isn't real. But he was like, no, this is, he was like, these are classy dudes and they won't run down the street in their underwear. So it fucking works. He totally no. does it. It completely works. <laughs> And the other thing that happens is like he gets the sense of when he's doing this that the mobsters are kind of sizing him up and kind of like respecting how he's handling himself. Like he suddenly just found himself being successful in this moment. I and I feel like it's got to be like they're, they could kill him, but they're kind of like, let's just see where this goes. There's no way you can hold one gun on 30 people. So here's what happens totally goes off without a hitch in fact it works so well that he goes back and does it again no muriel three more no times. they're letting him do it so one night after the fourth robbery he's having dinner with his mother and father and there's a knock at the front door <laughs> of course there is i was like you know there's a going that papanya kid or whatever his name papanya. is <laughs> so anyways they show up and he's immediately terrified. He can tell it's like three dudes dressed in all black, like definitely scary mobsters. And to his crazy surprise, his dad opens the door and starts speaking in like a Sicilian dialect to them. And just immediately right out of the gate is like, I told you men to never come near my family and I want you to leave right now. And the men are like, actually, we need to talk to you, you and your son. This is important. He's like, no, you got to go. And they're like, you're not going to have a son. This is important. <laughs> so they come into the house. And the men, so they sit down on the couch and the men sit down and they say, look, we know it's you who's been robbing us. <laughs> and the only reason you're still alive is because of the respect we have for your grandfather. Whoa. And this blew little Tom Papania's mind. He had never even heard his parents speak of his grandfather. He had no idea who his grand, he didn't even know his grandfather's name. Was he still in Sicily? The grandfather? So. He's like, so the guys leave. We'll be they're, asking they're questions. Like, That's hard, think. isn't it? <laughs> well, it's, it's hell annoying when I'm going to answer that. I know. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyways, the guys are like, don't do it again. Even the respect we have for your grandfather won't save you. Like, don't do that anymore. So the men leave and he's like, dad, who the hell is my grandfather? And his dad is like, I'm not going to tell you, but what I will do is beat you worse than I've ever beaten you ever before. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, this is really not going to go good. No, for it him. didn't go well at all. It beat the hell. He beat the hell out of Tom. And, but he still didn't cry. Could you imagine? Sorry. Yeah. But like, <laughs> I'm just thinking about his dad. Yeah. I'm assuming his dad is, we're going to find out. Right. But his, the, the grandfather is some sort of high up mafia guy. Right. 
And so it's like, you leave, you go to New York, and you're like, I'm going to raise a family. And, you know, maybe you learned how to be a dad, maybe from a crappy dad. You know what I mean? Like, probably his dad's not much better. Yeah. He's like, this is what you do. You beat them until they cry. And that's the thing, right? Yeah. And then you go, and he grew up in a way that was very similar, and he turned out okay, and he's not in the mafia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you get a son that, like, laughs in your face when you beat him <laughs> at the age of, like, 12. Yeah. You'd just be like, what? the hell is going like you would just think he would it was just be pure genetics like you know what i mean i would just be sitting there going oh my god this kid is just like a genetic monster okay which he basically was okay so the next morning out of just pure hatred for his father he goes right back to that storefront no this time with no mask and he walks in and everyone turns to him and there's kind of like the guy who seems like maybe he's in charge and he goes and he sits at the table and he's like, who is my grandfather? And, the, and he's all beat up and everything yeah. too. And That's the dude's crazy. like, you know, your dad's a really stupid man, you know? And he's like, I didn't come here to talk about my father. I hate my father. One day I'll kill my father. I'm here to talk <laughs> about my grandfather. <laughs> and the dude's like, all right, here it is. He tells him that his grandfather is Joe Mazzaria, an early mob boss who the FBI credited with bringing the mafia over from Sicily. Okay. He had become the head of what turned into the Genovese crime family. Oh, okay. And he was super powerful in New York, one of the top five crime families in New York. He ended up recruiting Lucky Luciano and then ended up being assassinated by Lucky Luciano. And his assassination was like the end of one of the bloodiest mob wars that after that, everything kind of settled down and they got into like the current phase of what the mob is. So he was like, definitely his grandfather was also just a bloodthirsty maniac. He's gotta be right. Yeah. 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 Super, very high, high up ahead of the family as bloodthirsty as any of these guys are. Right. But definitely know. okay with having a war that ends in his death. I mean, if it's like a well, bloody I don't era, th- he didn't want to die. But no, he but was you a part of saying. a bloody war. Like, yes. it's like that ebb and flow thing where everybody wants, like, of course, they're all going to try to kill each other and get into power yeah. and whatever. But yeah. everybody's way more into it when people aren't fighting. <laughs> because then you can right. just get rich. Yeah, right. So you definitely have the people who are like, oh, man, don't put him in charge. <laughs> yeah, this is going to yeah. be, like, terrible. Right? And, like, the violence rises. And then when – I have always just feel like in movies and stuff, mm-hmm. the goal is always to say, okay – the guy's dead. Okay. <laughs> We're chilling. We're chilling. Let's you killed just, my son. I killed, I killed your, your son. son. They're all dead. Caught a gentleman's agreement. You say on the east of 42nd Street. <laughs> I'll say in like Hudson Valley. She's just saying things. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. Okay. Don't, don't get Muriel involved with the map or direction. She just says things. Okay. Okay, so the man goes on to say, like, your dad could have had all this power, but he's a he's a stupid idiot, and he's, like, broke and, like, doing this thing. And, you know, and Tom's like, well, if my dad doesn't want it, I'm the next in line. Can I have it? Uh-huh. And the man sort of looks at him. Is he, like, 15 now? He's 15 years old. Oh, my old. God. So the man looks at him, and he considers him, and he's like, well, we've got a lot to teach you, but I'll take you under my wing. And, yeah, you can... You can start the process. And that man was Carlo Gambino, Whoa. the head of the Gambino family okay so at 15 years old out of hatred for his father tom papania starts working for the mob (laughs) (laughs) backfired bitch (laughs) for two years they had him doing like little robberies kind of running bullshit scams just learning the ropes but simply put tom was big and scary 
You know, he didn't cry ever. He showed no signs of weakness. <laughs> People looked at him and were scared of him. And he was really, really good at collecting money. So as a teenager, he was able to intimidate and beat up adult men. He was out there stabbing fools, shooting out kneecaps. And his big source of pride was that he was so good at collecting money that he never had to kill anyone. He always got the money. Even though he had to stab him and shoot him a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but yeah. he didn't have to kill him. <laughs> yeah. And as Mazaria's grandson, he was also able to, cure, to uh, secure a special kind of golden child position with Carlo Gambino and basically never had to deal with anyone besides the boss. Uh, so Gambino was the only person he ever actually delivered the money to. And at, very quickly at age 17, they made him a made man. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's young. Man. So that night he goes home and he's, he's going to like go flaunt it in his father's face. Right. But his dad wasn't home. He walks in and he finds his mother praying in her bedroom. And they kind of have this confrontation where Tom is sort of like looking for a fight. And he asks her what she's praying for. And she's praying, well, I'm, I'm praying that God will protect you. And I'm praying that you'll become a priest. And he just like laughs out loud. He's like, I mean, what come on, talking? girl. <laughs> yeah. You got you to gotta be kidding me. Why don't you stop the dad from beating the shit out of him before you worry about whether or not he's a priest? Good point. Okay. And, and basically that's what Tom says. He says, God never protected me against all those beatings I got from dad. I don't need God to protect me. Now I have this. And he pulls out this gun. He's like, this is, this will protect me. So I don't want you to pray for me anymore. And his uh -huh. mother looks at him and says, those men who say they respect your grandfather are the same men who killed him. My childhood, my childhood was spent in fear and I can't bear them killing my only son. Not you, not that gun, not even the mafia can stop me from praying. So I have a question. Yeah. Whose dad is it? it her father. It's her Joe dad. Masaria, right? Okay. Yeah. Not, not, uh, not Beatty McBeaterson. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that was the last time he saw his mother for many, many years. Shortly after being made, he's given a job. Some trucks from the Gambinos had been stolen, and it was an inside job. Someone with, from within the family had brought in some nobodies from Kansas City to rob these trucks. The inside man had already been killed, but they wanted Tom to fly down to Kansas City where a car would be waiting for him with pictures of the two nobodies and directions to where they would be, and the job was to shoot them, not to kill them, just to shoot them and make examples out of them to other nobodies who think they maybe they could go to New York and make some a couple quick bucks. Okay. Okay. drive back to the airport and fly right back to New York. Okay. So, that's so just job. like a little preemptive shoot, shoot shooting. Yep. Just okay. these guys don't matter, but don't kill them. We don't want that on our hands. We just want them to be alive and realize like, wow, don't go up to New York thinking you can make some money. Yeah. Okay. So Tom takes the flight and everything goes exactly as planned, just as it was supposed to. And when he's coming back after shooting them, he boards the plane to get back to New York and it's filled with police and he's immediately arrested. No. So long story short, he doesn't snitch he doesn't say anything and as a teenage first-time offender he's given five years in the Missouri State Penitentiary and it is an extremely rough five years it's a violent prison and he has to fight like almost every day and he just uses those five years to like harden himself even further so he never backs down from a fight and his whole his whole like modus operandi is like never show any weakness okay and he gets out of this thing five years later even colder and more violent and tougher <laughs> okay <laughs> while he's in jail he does get a letter from his father saying we know you're in jail for shooting two men you broke your mother's heart like she'll never recover if you ever try to see her again i'll kill you stay away from us and that basically did nothing but make tom even more hardcore 
Well, of course. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's like, who is his, who, who does his dad think he is? <laughs> he's not even related to the big, big guy. Yeah. He's like, they're like, oh, your dad's a stupid man. It's like, yeah, on like a lot of levels. <laughs> okay. So there, there was only really one crack in his otherwise savage armor. And that was that he feared he had made a mistake that led himself to getting caught and that his boss and everyone at home was going to be pissed at him. And on top of that, every day in jail, he went over and over what mistake he could have made, and he just couldn't figure it out. So nobody communicated with him in jail at no, all? No. That's kind of eerie. Okay, so. It was a he, setup. He gets out, and he's definitely scared to see his boss. He's like, I fucked up. They're pissed. But right away, Gambino calls him in. And it's at the same storefront, and he walks in, and one of the bodyguards is like, give me your gun. Uh-oh. And he's like, I don't, like, don't want to give you this gun. He's like, I'll put it on this table over here. And oh, good, like yeah. Decide on that. Because he's like, well, if they try to kill me, I'll grab him and shoot all that. I'll just right? do a backflip over here and grab the gun. No, fucking John Wick. John Wick over here. Okay, so. <laughs> you did it, not me. <laughs> Gambino comes out and sits across from him and is like, uh, you know what? We could not be prouder of you. Like, you kept your mouth shut. You did your time. You were perfect. Like, you nailed it. And Tom's like, yeah, but I made a mistake. I did something to get myself caught. And Gambino's like, eh, now you're going to find out why we want you to have your gun away over there. <laughs> <laughs> we were the ones who told the police. I know we they did. He was like, you've been doing great, but you've just had it too easy. You climbed the ladder way too fast. Yeah. And you... We haven't seen you under pressure. We needed to see what you would do under pressure. And now we know. And he stood up and opened his arms and he said, welcome home, son. <laughs> and at this point, the thing, Tom, does he cry? Yeah. Because it's the first time anyone had ever called him son. He doesn't cry as a, as a young man. He cries like in the telling of it. You oh, know? okay. Because he just remembers what it was like. I was going to say that was, that's a, I was like, don't do that. Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely wrong time to start crying. <laughs> Uh, so anyways, but he was just like, he wanted to, he was just like, I'm going to kill all these motherfuckers. But before he can kill anyone, Gambino just like gives him a choice. And he, cause up until this point, Tom had been making like a few hundred dollars a week, like doing well for himself, but just kind of being like an errand boy more yeah, or less. Right, yeah. And Gambino's like, I'm going to hand you over a business. Like it's time to give you real responsibility. It's time for you to make real money. Like, you know, all of our operations, what do you want? And there were two nightclubs that Tom was like really into. And I think when he was in jail, he's like, well, I want to get into the nightclub business when I get out. That'd yeah, be yeah, fun. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know which one I want. Can I think it over? And Gambino's like, no worries. Take them both. <laughs> so boom, all that anger immediately disappeared. Okay. Here is Tom Papania, a made guy in one of the five families at the height of mob power in his early twenties. He's the owner of two nightclubs. The world was his and he completely flourished. So he's a great businessman. Everyone was scared of him. He started making major money and was pretty much the archetypal gangster from like casino or Goodfellas. You know oh, what I'm saying? Yeah, good with the movies. costume yeah. made, uh, you know, with the costume, <laughs> with the custom made expensive jewelry, flashy cars, tons of girlfriends, fancy properties a big shot everywhere he went yeah he was re he really was living that life yeah. like just like those guys yeah he bought more clubs plus he was increasingly involved in more and more aspects of all the gambino empire gambling and unions being the biggest pieces of the puzzle yeah 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 uh because from the beginning even like from even before all this that gambinos did not deal drugs at all okay. no drug involvement whatsoever okay. so that was in place before big paul took over and this no drug dealing thing was like 
brutally, brutally enforced. Three of Tom's like good close friends who were also made guys, fellow family members, have been killed by the boss for what he felt like were relatively minor involvement right, with like, drugs. Right, like, hey man, you want to join? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And one of his friends was actually sitting next to him inside one of his nightclubs when a hitman blew his head off with a shotgun. No. Like inside a nightclub sitting next to Tom. Well, that's so hard because he's in a nightclub. You know, everybody's doing drugs. It's like the 80s. Like they're all doing cocaine. Well, and his thing was like, I don't even think it was like necessary. He's vague about it, but it's like, I don't even think it was necessary necessarily like they were doing drugs it was like they did business with someone who also was a drug dealer or something yeah i mean i think that's why all this friction is starting because they're like what are you talking how do we stay away from drugs yeah like it's not prohibition anymore like it's a nightclub people are trying to ratchet it up it's (laughs) the go go 80s right (laughs) like well this is not the 80s yet this is still this is still before that okay we're not not in the 80s yet but the point still remains totally true and there's like these old school guys being like drugs will rot your brain and they're like what are you talking about about? your brain is rotten from syphilis (laughs) (laughs) okay so anyways tom himself was not drawn to drugs at all he wasn't even a drinker because of his father and these kind of brutal killings of people who slipped up just kept him like nowhere near breaking those rules he was really like arms like he was not going to make that same mistake yeah the way he looked at it his friends knew the rules knew the consequences and although he himself was not a hitman he's just ice cold about these deaths you know he he followed rules uh but he was otherwise like a total sociopath well and and i bet you he's being conditioned i mean like getting your friend shot in the face while you're sitting next to him at the club you owned is definitely a statement for him too like for Tom to be like, remember, don't right. do exactly. drugs. Exactly, 100%. Yeah. And on a very, very logical level, like he knew the history of his grandfather, he sort of accepted that more than likely it would be the mafia itself who kills him. Yes. He was just like, this is the, this is the game we're playing. Right. This is, this is what it is. And he wasn't wrong. He did survive three significant uh, assassination attempts that escalated in hilarious fashion. So first he survived a stabbing. So he was stabbed. He was stabbed. But survived. But survived. Then he was shot, but survived. Then he was kidnapped, tied up, and put into a building that was set on fire, which he was able to escape. (laughs) So he's very vague about all the details, but the implication (laughs) is that all three attempts were from lower level people wanting to take his spot. Right. Okay. So after that, though, after surviving the fire thing, he was like really, truly feared. They were just like, you actually can't kill Tom. He's like, he's like immortal. Okay. So he really was doing well for himself. So, and he's just like hella like trusted otherwise with the business and everything and Gambino died of natural causes in 1976 and Paul Castellano took over when he did Papania's position was sort of grandfathered in so the arrangement uh, stayed the same way with Papania really only answering directly to the boss uh-huh okay so he was now only dealing with Paul Castellano and he was basically third highest in the family okay okay So he's rich, he's powerful, he can't be killed. But he has something in his heart that just keeps gnawing at him. He wants to kill his dad? (laughs) A little annoying void that just won't go away. 
Buying new things sometimes helps and sleeping around with hot women is also good, but it never really goes away for long. He thought maybe because of all the attempts on his life and constant law enforcement surveillance that he just needed to get out of New York. Okay, he was constantly being arrested for little things. At one point, he goes back to jail for two years because of some sting operation. Uh, but at this time, it was at like a correctional facility, which was pretty much just like a vacation for him. He just got a tan, came out two <laughs> years later and went right back into his position of power. Yeah. It's also weird at this point in the recording, he slides in like a pretty hard dig at the ACLU <laughs> for turning prisons into college dormitories. He's like, yeah, the ACLU stuck their nose in and turned it from a prison into a correctional <laughs> facility. Like, what am I doing over here? You know? <laughs> Just like talking trash about how the ACLU made it more humane. <laughs> Anyways... <laughs> He just feels like it's got to be New York that's kind of keeping him back and keeping him from like, you know, that's the the source of this void in his heart. And he starts tossing around the idea of getting out of New York, which his boss gives him the green light. Big Paul's like, you can be useful elsewhere if you choose. He tries Florida. He goes out to California. He likes the warm weather. But he just doesn't really like any of these places. And the void in his heart never really goes away. And he keeps returning to New York. It seems like he has anxiety. Well, I mean, he, I think so too. I think that, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, what he has is Satan and what he doesn't have is Jesus, but we'll get to that. Oh, okay. okay. <clears throat> so back in New York, the Gambino family is controlling the unions that are building up Atlantic City. And through a friend, Tom is asked to meet a restaurateur from Atlanta who wants to expand his business and open a location in the casinos in Atlantic City. Okay. So Tom takes the meeting with the restaurateur and this guy's like a Southern dude, right? Totally legit businessman, but he's also really flashy and loves all the same luxurious stuff as Tom, which was a big surprise to him uh-huh. because he just thought the South was like hee-haw. Right, he's he like, has they're no just like idea. country bumpkins, and this guy shows up, and he's like super sophisticated, and drives Mercedes, and has boats, and like has all the hot women, and this guy's describing these restaurants in Atlanta, and Tom's just like, "What? Those sound like way better than anything we have in New York." And he's like, "Yeah, they kind of are, <laughs> right?" He's like, "There's no way this is true," but the guy has money, and he's talking real money. It seems like a real business opportunity. But isn't hasn't it been like gambling in Atlanta forever? He's just a New York fucking guy. He should you know? know. So, anyways, he flies down to Atlanta. And to check out the businesses, and he's just like blown away by the city. He just didn't know. He yeah, just didn't know yeah. what, that it was cracking. You know, the restaurants are even nicer than he imagined. They're profitable. The city is beautiful, like a clean New York. He's able to move around with a lot more freedom. He isn't looking over his shoulder, and he thinks he can muscle his way into this guy's restaurants, take over, build a little empire. Okay, that's so funny. He's like, I'm going to kill this guy and take what he has. This <laughs> yeah. is great. So he moves to Atlanta buys a mansion in the most exclusive area and does just that. He doesn't kill him, uh-huh. but it's 1984 moving into 1985. And through a series of manipulations, he starts getting like more and more percentage of the profits of these restaurants. They open a couple more locations. Then he finds out this guy is a drug user and in front of everyone on like a Friday night or something, he beats his ass in front of like this entire restaurant of people and is basically like, if I ever see you again, I'll kill you and I'm taking over your restaurant. <laughs> so his dad did teach him something. Yeah. 
okay, so he's like living in Atlanta. He's ruined this legit businessman and taken everything this guy built. But besides that, he's kind of just being a regular yuppie. Yeah. You know, he's like, no one's threat. Like, I don't have to deal with like day to day violence. Yeah. No one's threatening me. I'm not under surveillance. He starts meeting other people. Like, he even meets this other Italian dude who's like a completely legitimate businessman who keeps like trying to invite him over because his wife makes the best Italian food you've ever had, you know? And the guy's, Tom's blowing this invitation off. He's like, okay, sure, I'll call you back. I'll call you back. But he's like, holy shit. Like, I have friends that aren't criminals. Like, this is weird. Yeah, right? yeah. And he starts to feel like a real person, and the void is a lot less chronic. Uh huh. So, after a few days, after he had beaten the guy's ass and really, like, fully taken over, um, it's a Saturday morning, and Tom Papania wakes up alone in bed. He's a bachelor in a mansion, completely furnished with the finest things money could buy. On his nightstand was a custom-made Rolex. His closets are filled with the finest suits. He sits up in bed and swings his feet over onto the luxury carpet, just sitting there, and he starts to reflect on just how successfully he has gotten everything he wanted. This move to Atlanta was amazing. He now had the restaurants he loved so much. He had freedom. He was surrounded by all the finest things and all of this he had earned by doing the thing he cared more about than anything else in the world, which was hurting his father. <laughs> you know, he's like, I want to hurt my father. I did, and it got me all this, yeah. you know? And his heart, for the first time, filled with pride. Uh-huh. It was something that he hadn't really ever felt before, and it just was like this deeper, like more powerful thing surging, and it was pride, and he, it was more intense than anything he'd ever felt, and and the void completely disappeared. And right as the surge crescendoed, clear as a bell, the voice of God spoke directly to him. <laughs> it really sounds like Satan. <laughs> well, the voice wasn't loud and there was no vision, but it was undeniably God. And God said to him, you're right. This is all yours and you did it your way. But there's something you don't know. You're going straight to hell. <gasps> Now, Tom had always believed in God, so this didn't scare him or even move him, per se. It fucking infuriated him. (laughs) And he began to speaking out loud to God in this room, basically... (laughs) Just like went into like a Joe Pesci character or something. He's like, what are you fucking threatening me? You think you're going to fucking scare me? You don't have shit on me, God. Right. He's like yelling at God. He's like, I didn't need your help when I was little getting beat. I proved I didn't need you then. Okay. I don't need you now. And your threats don't scare me. Uh You cannot scare me with hell. Are you fucking kidding? He's like, I'll prove it to you. And he pulls out a gun and he goes to shoot himself in the head. And right as he lifts the gun to his head, the phone rings. He answers it. It's the Italian guy who's been inviting him over for dinner over and over again who he keeps brushing off. Uh-huh. Tom, Tom does the usual brush off routine. Uh-huh. But this guy, this he's a little more insistent this time. The guy says, no, 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 wait. This time is different. Tomorrow's Sunday. We're doing a big Italian Sunday dinner. We want to invite you over to that. But before that, come and meet us at church. I knew it. Okay. So Tom has this gun to his head at this point. He makes a little joke. Talk about the last supper. Oh my God. <laughs> so Tom has his gun to his head and he looks up at God. He's like, you're trying to outsmart me. Aren't you fine? I'll go to the stupid church, prove I don't need you and kill myself later. He's like, I can do a suicide whenever I want. He's like having literally a complete mental break. I he's know. Just, he's just like completely having. <laughs> it's hilarious. And he's just like, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> that's so funny. Okay. So he agrees. He agrees. He meets us. He's like, I'll meet you at this, the 
church the next morning. Okay, he puts on his finest suit, his best jewelry, gets into his perfectly sparkling, shiny, shined up Mercedes, and is basically prepared to go like stun on these fools. He's uh-huh. like, he's gonna show up to this church and be like, "Fuck you, God! I'm better than all these people. This is bullshit." Right now, he almost doesn't find the church at all. He keeps driving past it and like circling the block because his idea of church is still that gigantic Roman Catholic church he grew up at. Right? Yeah. And the dress he's been given is to a double wide trailer and the sign had something on it about non-denominational which he didn't even connect to like christianity or church or religion or anything (laughs) so he just like didn't know what this thing was but he's like well this is it okay so he pulls into the driveway and like no one's car is nice he goes inside. Nothing is ornate. I mean, this is Roman Catholic churches. It's like everything is like golden and crowns. Yeah, and yeah. Beautiful. This is like a double wide trailer in, in Atlanta. You yeah. Know, it's a non-denominational evangelical church, right? And uh, no one is like wearing expensive clothing, n- not even close. But everyone has this like weird little smile on their face. And he takes a seat and the service just kind of like goes by in a blurk just because he's so weirded out by what the hell is wrong with these people? It's like, <laughs> what are they doing, right? So he's just like, all right, this is fucking weird. And he's like upset and perturbed and then it's over. And then the guys and his wife are like, okay, you're coming over for dinner. Now he's like, absolutely not. And he leaves, okay? He goes directly back home goes directly to his bedroom and sits on his bed and picks up his mental breakdown exactly where he left it <laughs> off. And he's like, what are you doing to me, God? What the <laughs> hell was that? Are you fucking kidding me? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm going back next week and I'm going to figure out what the big inside joke is. They're all trying to hide something from me. That's like his logic. Yeah. So the following Sunday, he goes back right to the church and he doesn't listen to a single word again. This time he's like scanning the whole place looking for a clue. Yeah. His big idea is that they have something hidden there. And they're all in on the joke. And he's like insecure that they have like a compartment. He's like literally looking for cracks. Like gas. Like they're going to gas. I mean, it's just like in the throes of like complete lunacy. right? Uh, And he doesn't listen to a word he says. And he gets up to leave. And the pastor is like, like 300 pounds he's like this huge dude and he's standing at the front door shaking everyone's hands as they leave and you kind of like can't get past him right so tom shakes his hand he's like okay whatever and the guy's like thanks for coming the last two weeks he's like all right i'm leaving and he puts his hand on him and kind of like pulls him back and tom like freaks out and he gets (gasps) in his face he's like don't you ever put your hands on me ever ever again and the guy says i'm sorry i want to say something to you but i don't want to offend you And right away, Tom was rattled because this guy was looking into his eyes and he was in his face threatening him. And he said it was the first time that he could ever remember that someone did that without being scared of him. Uh He was like, this man is not scared of me. And that's really, really weird. And he says, I want to say this thing to you, but I don't want to offend you. And Tom says, if you offend me, it'll be the last thing you ever do. You don't know who I am. (laughs) Subtle, but good. (laughs) I know. I'm just like, are you, is everyone just surrounding him at this point? It sounds like it's like in a crowded little church. Anyways. So the pastor says the eyes are the window to the soul. And when I look into your eyes, all I see is a little boy crying for his father. And Tom is rattled. Okay. He's rattled. This dude knows his secret, but it's actually not the first time that a priest had sort of thrown him off his game back when he was serving that two year bid in the cushy correctional facility. He actually did start going to a Catholic service once a week, but not because he was into the church aspect, but because some of the church people that came on to put the service on for the uh, prisoners were ladies. And he was Uh like, I want to check out the girls or whatever. Right. (laughs) So after a few weeks of that, the prison priest came up to him and said, 
I think you should become a priest. And that reminded him of, of the prayer that, and it really rattled him. And he was like, uh, and then he left and just said, never come back. Right. <laughs> so here he is in Atlanta in this non-denominational pastor is looking into his eyes and recognizing what Tom was trying to keep hidden. Needless to say, he was shook to his core and he's immediately, immediately like, this man knows my weakness. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> so he plays it cool and he's like, all right, okay. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm into your church. Let me get your business card. So the guy gives him his business card and he goes home and right away, like that evening, he calls the pastor and is like, Hey, I, I want to talk to you. Can we meet? And the pastor's like, yeah, yeah. Um, my office is being worked on, but we can go to the church. No one is there. It'll be private. And Tom's like, great. great. That's perfect. I'm going to murder I'm you. Murder you. <laughs> so he goes to shoot this guy. Right. And he walks in and the pastor is sitting there and right out of the gate just right out of the gate the pastor's like tom do you know jesus and this kicks off this really like kind of stilted awkward conversation between the two men because tom starts talking about what he knows of jesus and religion but he's saying things like purgatory and the pastor wasn't really familiar with that concept and the pastor is talking about born again and Tom has no idea what he's kind of talking about and they're just sort of missing each other but the pastor is regardless is just like I think you should join our church and Tom's like absolutely not I'm the biggest (laughs) sinner you've ever seen you wouldn't want anything to do with me if you knew who I really was and the pastor's insistent and he's like join this church and Tom figures like I'm gonna murder this guy right here but he's getting kind of like frustrated and he's like trying to prove to him that he's like a big bad scary guy and he starts listing off all the terrible things he's done that's right? hilarious and he that's just gets into bad, it it's like a Bond movie you know where like the evil guy wants to kill Bond yeah. but then he like tells him his whole plan beforehand yeah. like of course so so he starts telling him all these things and something happens to tom he loses sense of himself he loses sense of time and the next thing he knows he kind of comes to and he's on his knees in what is clearly like a old school christian confession going through every horrible thing he's ever done and he's doing something he hasn't done since he was a little kid he's crying sobbing oh my god So this is the part of the story that is really, really amazing to born again Christians because I think it's a pretty universal experience for them. But basically Jesus came into Tom's heart and and the pastor led him in a series of prayers and he was born again right there on the spot and dedicated his life to God from there on out. Oh, so you don't have to be baptized or anything to be born again. You can just be born again in a moment? Yeah. I didn't know that. I think the baptized part comes later because part of their stilted conversation was him asking Tom if he had been baptized and Tom said yes, but he was like, well, did you renounce, did you recognize, do all this recognizing stuff about how God, Jesus died for your sins and 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 the whole deal? And he said, no, I was a month old. And he was like, well, that's not really then you weren't really baptized. Like that was part of the stilted conversation. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really know, but I think the baptism can come afterwards. Okay. I mean, it's not, a, it's not crucial. I just right. didn't realize it. I thought there was like a ceremony to being born again. I didn't realize it was just like, a no, I think it's an incredibly personal thing mm-hmm. where you speak directly to God and you sort of, I, uh, there are some things you need to say, I guess, but I think it can, you can just, it can just happen alone. Just happened with this pastor uh-huh. for Tom, like right then and there. Hopefully, that wasn't too disrespectful of a 
uh, <laughs> summation of what that process is. Okay. Uh, so, welcome to my world. Right. I'm always just like, am I just a huge asshole? <laughs> right. Okay. So I am going to give you the quick and dirty version of a series of events that follow okay. this, of uh, follow his uh, being saved. First of all, God starts talking to Papania very frequently. The first thing he says is you got to quit the mafia and give up everything that you ever got through illegal means, which was literally everything he owned and all his money. But can you quit the mafia? So he Paul he calls Paul Castellano and tells him he's quitting. And Big Paul says, uh, actually, if you do that, you're definitely going to be killed. Okay. Great. And Tom immediately starts quoting the Bible. He this fool's just out of the gate with no. the Bible quotes. So he's like, oh, this man, he he's off the deep end. He's off. Well, he's he's just like, no weapons formed against me shall prosper. I'm quitting for real. Like you you know. Good luck trying to kill me. So big, Tom, big Paul puts a hundred thousand dollar price out on Tom's head, and it and and Tom starts the process. He starts giving away all of his stuff. It takes about two months to get rid of everything, but he really does get rid of everything, and he dedicates himself full time to the Bible study thing. Right? He gets a real job because God told him like you need to earn your money. He's like a systems operator at like a factory or something, and at the job interview he has no real resume to show, but he uses the interview as an excuse to give his testimony, which was perhaps the first time he ever told someone his life story, and it, like for what it's worth, it like totally worked. Like the dude was like you're hired, you know, it's just yeah. had this incredible story. I mean, I'm doing this kind of like piss poor job of going through this, but when you listen to this you recording, are not. you're doing a great job. I'm just saying this guy's story is famous cause he's so good at telling it. So I could just imagine the first time him telling it and it's sort of getting him something. The guy's like, here's a job, right? <laughs> okay. So at the same time, Paul Castellano is being investigated by the feds and the feds want Tom to testify against his former boss and he's scared to go back to New York. He's unsure what to do. He's kind of like trying to talk to his priest, you know, what should I do? Pete, they might come down here. They could kill you. They could kill other people might get people involved. And when he's trying to figure out what move to make big Paul Castellano goes out to a steak dinner and gets murdered in cold blood in midtown Manhattan. No, not only does that mean John Gotti takes over the family it means the prize money for killing to Tom Papania also goes away. It died with Castellano. Castellano lived by, I can't even say his name now. Castellano lived by the sword. He died by the sword. You reap what you sow. God works in mysterious ways. Tom Papania is a lot safer now that Castellano is gone. Okay. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. So he's feeling like this is pretty good. Yeah. I got this weight. Off my shoulders. He said, you try to kill me, God's going to kill you. And it happened. It kind of did. I mean, this is, I still think for somebody who's having some mental health problems, this is like these coincidences are probably not helping the situation. (laughs) (laughs) So what else is happening in his life is he tries to reconnect with his father, which is actually pretty successful, but his father is still very protective of the mother. And he's like, you broke her heart once. I won't stand to see it again. And so you can't talk to your mom, but like, I'll kind of touch base with you and see if you're actually being truthful about this whole, like come to Jesus shit you're doing. Well, someone does end up secretly reaching out to Tom to tell him that his mother has cancer and is on her deathbed. Okay. Uh So he goes to see her in the hospital. Heals her. He doesn't heal her, but she does cry for joy because God answered her prayers and he was a man of God now. Uh And they had like this moving reunion before she passes away. Oh Yeah. Now, the feds were still hungry to charge someone. Big Paul Castellano is gone. Don, uh, John Gotti's 
uh, Teflon Don nickname is already starting to stick. They can't get anything on Gotti. So they start cooking up all these charges against Papania. Right, because he's the guy who's been directly involved with like handing over money this entire time. But here's time. the thing. They can't still kind of can't get any real evidence against him. Uh-huh. So they do arrest him and all these informants just start coming through and pa- Tom Papani is just like none of that is real. Like all those people are like that's a lie, that's a lie. Like what are they doing? And it really seems like there's just huge mounting evidence of all these crimes that he committed and all this shit that are implicating him and all these things and he's just like none of this is real. So he's him and his church start like this huge prayer campaign and they basically pray that the truth will set him free. And one by one, sure enough, all of these fake informants are like, yeah, the, the feds paid me to say that that's not true. They all just like (laughs) one by one drop away. Right. And God wills, God's will prevails. Tom Papania is a free man. He's fully committed to spreading the word of God and saving souls. He begins Telling his story publicly, it's totally incredible. He's this great orator. He's living proof that even the most evil sinner could be saved and that God will protect the faithful. Churches from all over the world invite him to speak. He starts saving people. His, mother, his mother's prayers have come true. He is an evangelical preacher. God is great. His reputation grows. Eventually, he releases the cassette tape that made its way into my life. What? So that's the story as I knew it, the end of the cassette tape. Okay. And I just think it's really fun to think back on what was essentially like a true crime podcast from way back before they really existed and how much like it meant to me at the time and how moved I was by it. And I realized also that I had never told you about it. No, you know, so it seemed like the perfect story to share on this podcast. You know, that is the craziest story. That guy is really powerful. Did so, he ever die? Okay, okay, okay. So, because I wanted to be like you, I did a little more research, okay? I wanted to find <laughs> out whatever ended up happening to Tom Papania. I was I was I pulled a Muriel. I wasn't satisfied. I wanted to dig a little deeper. The tape came out a long time ago. So, what did he do? to update the story, I learned that he really has like totally traveled the globe converting converting people to Christianity with like really shocking success in Australia. He's credited with saving like tens of thousands of Australians. Um, yeah, it's like he's very popular in Australia. Um, and I did find out one little juicy nugget, an interesting addendum, which is it's highly likely that his entire story is an absolute lie. <laughs> no source anywhere verifies that he was Joe Mazaria's grandson. <laughs> No one credits Mazaria with bringing the mafia from Sicily. There's absolutely no evidence anywhere that he was ever the third highest in the Gambino family. I was going to say, I've never heard of this guy. And I, I don't know a lot about Sicilian mob history, but I know some because of you. Not even the nerdiest mafia history message boards could drag up any evidence whatsoever that he was ever a made man. There's no official or unofficial folklore or anything about Carlo Gambino being robbed for his pants. 
I mean, that was the most insane thing. There are absolutely no court or prison records of him being charged or sentenced for the Kansas City, Kansas City shooting or the two years he did. And I didn't tell that story when he went to the correctional facility, but it was like this weird convoluted story where a friend of his was like robbing the stock market and had like a briefcase of four and a half million dollars <laughs> and asked him to hold it. And the feds showed up. It was just to be like, it was a sting operation. It was like the exact kind of thing that there'd be tons of reports on. And well, the same thing with having an airplane full of cops that like busted him. There's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> How uh, shocked were you when you found that out? <laughs> were you pretty shocked? I was like, well, eventually it just starts to make a lot yeah. of sense. It turns out his name was actually not even Papania. He it changed like, it. It was Papanier. <laughs> he just made it sound more Italian. He was like French. So if you Google Tom Papania, the first thing that comes up is TomPapaniaInfo.com, which is an Australian group offering uh, $50,000 US to anyone who can prove that he was telling the truth. No. <laughs> <laughs> they're just like totally pissed and they're also claiming like all these churches are like were well aware that he was fraudulent and kept like bringing him in and presenting him as the real because he's so fun yeah he's really good and he's super super effective i believed him uh on their website they have all these links to these court transcripts of tom papania's actual sworn testimonies okay because he actually had been like a low-level like burglar uh-huh and he had testified <laughs> so so there are some prime details of these testimonies um so here's here's a couple of them one is that he was never in the mafia <laughs> <laughs> that he met paul castellano exactly one time and didn't even realize it was him until afterwards someone told him the fact uh-huh four months after he sort of met Castellano when he was he was he was like a doorman at a club Uh anyways four months after that he did go to work for a poultry company owned by Paul's son Joseph basically Tom was a working stiff he worked all the time he was great at his job he was like really a trusted solid dude he was a part of this big poultry operation and knew all aspects of it he his Tax returns are a part of the evidence of this trial, okay? And the, the the reason why I think the tax records are so important to proving that he was a legitimate, legitimately had the job, was taxes were the one thing that they could actually get mobsters on. Right, exactly. And they're like, yeah. this is the tax thing proving that he's <laughs> that not, not a gangster. A <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, eventually, Paul Castellano did use Tom Papania's apartment to hide in one time while Tom was out of town, but Tom also only found out about that after the fact. The closest thing to being mobbed up that I came across was that he does testify to being very close, like close like brothers with Tommy Bellotti from 1967 oh, yeah. to 1976. I remember that name from the beginning. Yeah. So he was the other dead body that was like Paul's bodyguard killed outside the steakhouse. And, but, you know, Tom's in his sworn testimony is saying we stopped being friends after 76, which is when Paul took over and Bilotti actually became a powerful mobster. Right. right. Uh, there are some like there's some gossip on the mafia message boards about how he was a gopher for Bilotti. But who knows if they were like really close friends or what? Yeah. Know, so yeah. Who knows what the nature of that relationship was uh, to me. Other like interesting like holes in this story is that. 
John Gotti only ever went to jail because he was eventually snitched on by his right-hand man and hitman, Salvatore the Bull Gravano, uh-huh. right, who's the most famous rat in the history of the mob. And the Bull famously snitched on Gotti and everyone and everything about the Gambinos and other families. And he never even brought up Tom Papania's name. <laughs> And you'd think like maybe the third highest in the Gambino family might be worth mentioning. He's like <laughs> apparently so integral to the Gambino <laughs> operations. And there's just other shit that doesn't make sense. You were right. No one gets made at 17. And you're like, That's young. That like doesn't happen. And even if he was Joe Mazaria's grandson, the idea that Carlo Gambino would basically adopt him into some high position literally makes no sense. Well, that's, I was thinking that too. I was like, like that's not, he has his own family. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't sense. make any sense. Uh, it's also just everyone's like, it's unfathomable that they would let the kid rob them. Four times? I mean, they're just like that. Like, no one's ever said that. And also, that clearly never happened. I mean, logistically, it just made zero sense. And the idea that a made man could quit the mob and not have a hit out, even if the boss dies, also makes no sense whatsoever. Like, it would be exactly the kind of hit that an up-and-comer would wanna, want to do to earn a rep. Yeah, You right. know what I mean? Plus, Gotti took over. He's an extremely, viciously violent boss, and it's just entirely implausible that he would just let that slide like oh yeah if you're a made man you do business in the south and you find jesus like you can just walk (laughs) of course not (laughs) right (laughs) all right so whatever happened to tom papania well he's alive and well it looks like he's been it looks like his speaking engagements um did start to dry up around 2004. Uh-huh. But for years before that, he was an extremely hot commodity. I found an article from 2003 that was a church basically bragging about how they had been trying to book him since 1999. Wow. And they were finally able to bring Tom Papania in front of their people. I also found a weird article. There's a, a former FBI agent who turned into a pastor. His name is Lucian Gandolfo. And he presented Tom Papania in 2001 as like a legitimate like like mafia to ministry story as like a totally true thing and this guy Lucian Gandolfo was a former FBI agent so he must have known that the story was fake but he like totally like perpetrated the lie and used his FBI prestige as like further selling points yeah I mean I don't know just because you're in the FBI doesn't mean you're like some sort of great guy no no definitely not (laughs) definitely not but it does mean that he would it it does mean that he would know that tom was lying you know right totally um i just feel like probably lots of people knew tom was lying i mean i know it's like pre-internet but it's not like too pre-internet if he's booking stuff and like yeah you know i mean people are gonna be like wow that's crazy but people are gonna start to I just can't. I think the main thing for me is I was like, they're going to kill him. Yeah. I've read enough mob stories to know (laughs) they'll just like blow you up. (laughs) Uh, So that actual original recording Uh was uh, recently uploaded onto YouTube YouTube in 2020. Oh, cool. And that's how I re-listened to it. And the comments are totally people like me being like, oh, I listened to this in the 90s. I've been looking for it. Here it is. Um, no one's really calling him a liar on the comments of that. And if you Google him, those few websites show up, but he doesn't have a Wikipedia article. He's like not very much on, um, 
the web. He His website was still active as recently as somewhere near the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, around that time, he released a newsletter that was really terribly written and homophobic. Mm. He complains about practicing homosexuals and lesbians becoming ordained senior pastors. And out of nowhere, like apropos of nothing, he starts complaining. He, quote, you cannot even turn on a TV during time prime without seeing some sitcom reality show or talk show that doesn't have a gay person as the lead character. What? <laughs> it's just like, that's not even what you, what you were talking about. <laughs> oh my so, God. Uh, what a monster. God's saving grace ministries, which is the company that released the cassette tape appears to be owned by Tom himself. Okay. Um, and it still has an active PO box in Talavast, Florida. Okay. On YouTube, there was a video of him speaking to a group of what I think are like students at the Wordwise College Bible in Douglasville, Georgia. Okay. It wasn't entirely clear, but I think that's what it is. And this was on October 4th, 2020. Okay. In this video, he claims that he heals people with his hands. Okay. Claims to have saved over 100,000 people with his testimonials. Uh, he claims to have been diagnosed and cured from prostate cancer and double pneumonia. And in both situations, he like went into the hospital. The doctors were like, this is the problem. He went and prayed. God said, you don't have that problem anymore. He went directly back to the doctors and they were like, I don't know what happened. Uh, that is so like, don't be telling people that. <laughs> okay. Uh, he also made a really funny joke. What okay. Was the joke was he was moving into a 55 plus community, uh -huh. a retirement community for people 55 and over. And there's like a swimming pool and it was full of women doing aerobics. Uh -huh. And so he goes to go and he goes to take off his shirt. And on his back, he has one of these big like Jesus sword tattoos. Okay. And like barbed wire around his arm and stuff. Uh -huh. And the women all kind of reacted like, oh, like scared. And like he was there to rape and pillage. And his joke was, if I was going to rape and pillage, I do it at a 21 plus community. Oh, if you're going to do it, God. do it right. <laughs> That was his joke. Uh, he claims uh, to have survived several sniper attempts on his life. Wow. He says that he was Tommy Bellotti's best friend and would have been there that night outside Spark Steakhouse if it wasn't for his well-timed salvation. But he actually never mentions Tommy Bellotti in the original recording. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, he says he stopped going to church a long time ago because it's full of hypocrites who judge people based on the way they look. I didn't hear him mention that people have publicly accused him of being a fraud, but he takes a heavy, like, haters gonna hate kind of standpoint. Yeah, you know? I could definitely see him not doing things because people are like, you're a giant liar. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he's just like, they're such hypocrites. They just don't like the way I look. <laughs> sort of the vibe I got. As for his father, Tom and him did become close after Tom was born again, but his father never really recovered from the death of Tom's mother. It just totally devastated him. His father left everything in his house just the way it was before she went into the hospital. So all of her clothing and everything remained the same for many years. Tom did try to move him out of the house to see if that would help him, but he flatly refused. Uh, in this video I saw on YouTube, he claims that one day a crooked homicide detective that he had known from back in the day called him on the phone to give him some news. This detective says that your father the other night laid out a bunch of photos of your mother on the ground, drew a bath, poured gasoline all over the house, got in the bathtub and then threw a match. The house burned down. 
for some reason, <laughs> the homicide detective was the pers- first person to discover the father's body. But that's what he said happened, that this homicide detective walked into the bathroom. And at first, he thought the 92-year-old man was still alive because he just looked untouched, just lying there with this huge smile on his face. But in fact, he was dead. Todd's and, lying ass. Are you kidding? <laughs> well, that's we that's, don't know. <laughs> that's what he said about his father's death. I can't believe any of that. I don't oh, know if, really I don't know. big dramatic ass. Oh, and then he put the photos down untouched. So, <laughs> when this happened, Satan spoke directly to Tom and was just outright mocking him to his face. He was like, "What kind of evangelist are you? You saved all those people, but I got your father." And Tom told Satan, the only reason my father would ever smile again is because he was seeing my mother again. And Tom knew they were both in heaven. The end. He made up that whole thing. And then he's going to be like trying to be like, oh, I talked to God and Satan. And my friend found my dad and he was untouched by fire. You can't kill those Papaniers with Get out. I'm sure he doesn't even have a dad. He's just <laughs> out here making up all this stuff. <laughs> so that's my true crime story from back in the day. Oh, I here love we are, it. 2022. All right. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny listening to it. Yeah. It's obviously it's made up. Right. You know, but it's so outrageous that it's just delightful. I mean, yeah, the whole totally. it's just so fun to listen to. You're like, no way. No right. way. Yeah, right. There were a couple things where I was like, that don't make no sense. Uh-huh. I definitely, one of them is this idea that, you know, your parents would be so united, you know, like in the sense of, I love your mother to death and I protect her no matter what. And she's like, you can beat, your dad can beat the shit out of you all day long. But, you yeah. know, I'm, I, yeah. I don't have a problem with your dad. I have a problem with you. And then at the end, the happy story is, is that his parents reunited. And I was like, your parents, if that's all true, it's like, I don't know how you could look at that and be like, oh yeah, my parents were some really great people. I know, <laughs> I'm glad. I know. Well, it's, he paints the picture too. He's like, you know, my parents were married for 62 years. This is in the 2020 sermon. Yeah. And he's like, and my father worshiped my mother. But like, that's his big sticking point that he just worshiped. It doesn't make any sense. I like that. That's the funniest thing to me. I was just like, this makes no sense. Oh man. What a crazy story. (sighs) That's so funny. And you thought it was true until you just found out. It wasn't. Yeah. I just, it was something I heard in high school and I listened to it like multiple times and thought it was great because it is. Yeah, it is. And it's totally moving. Yeah. And I played it for some friends. It's a story, you know, it's a great story. And who cares if it's fake? Yeah. I mean, it is pretty intense for churches to probably know it's fake and just it's like a lot of it happened in the South where, you know, just as much as he thought people from the South were like, hee haw. They were like, yeah, Italian people from New York are in the mob. And of course, that's how right. it works. I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, it, it, it's it, uh, like we did an episode a while back on snake handling in the Appalachian yeah. Mountains. And yeah. like a lot of that is trippy 
you know, and then some of it feels real. And then some of it is like also smoke and mirrors, you know, like people drinking strip bottles and labeled strychnine that isn't strychnine and then eventually somebody does drink the strychnine and then they die you know i mean there's lots of stuff going on that's like uh, right pageantry and perhaps a sleight of hand here and there and then real kind of miracle stuff right right. so it's like you know you just gotta we're just casting about trying to make our lives (laughs) (laughs) that's how i felt telling this story i'm sweating you know you are oh my god i need a drink of water you know you did such a good job okay well i really am excited because i was feeling like i was picking on you when when i told you you were talking too fast so i'm curious to see if you listen to it because to me (laughs) just in that beginning part you i was like dying laughing but then i thought oh am i just being an asshole like i i don't want to like Maybe it's just something I'm hearing, but there was something you did one time a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this when I was trying to see if you look like Joaquin Phoenix, and I kept telling you to lower your eye your eyebrows, but you kept like squinting your eyes. Do you remember that? <laughs> and I was like, "You're not lowering your eyebrows. You're squinting your eyes. You're like, what are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just reminded me of it because I go, I think you're talking, I I might be wrong, but I think you're talking really, really fast. And then you go, okay, so then he went outside for the fun. You have me wrong. Well, tragically, I do have to go back and listen to this now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. I did all the research, writing, recording, editing, everything, and Muriel didn't do a damn thing. I brought the charm. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. And check out our t-shirts. We have a link in the show notes of this episode. We draw and animate little bonus content cartoons for Muriel's Murders, which populate our social media feeds. You can find us at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open, and you can email us at Muriel'sMurders at gmail.com. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you friends should tune into. Also, I think you can rate it on that now. I don't remember, but (laughs) hey, you help the robots help us. (laughs) Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats and check out the music video for Thomas Shelby in the show notes right now. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, please check out our comedy podcast, Hella in Your 30s, wherever you listen to podcasts all right non-murder baby what what <laughs> okay we're see you later now. bye <laughs>Have you ever encountered an unexplained hairy bipedal hominid in the woods? Have you received telepathic messages from an unidentified aerial phenomenon? If so, then you need to listen to Bigfoot Collectors Club. I'm Michael McMillan. And I'm Bryce Johnson. And together with super producer... Riley Bray. We make up the Bigfoot Collectors Club. That's right. Every week we talk to actors, comedians, writers, and paranormal experts about their personal paranormal histories and share stories of high strangeness. Like the time when we talked to Craig Ferguson about the Loch Ness Monster and when a sea witch told him he had raven magic. Or the time I asked Pitch Perfect's Anna Camp her opinion on cattle mutilations. 
Past guests have included Rachel Bloom, Jen Kirkman, Paul F. Tompkins, Bobcat Goldthwait, and more. So if you've ever been abducted alongside five reindeer by an alien with grills for hands, or witnessed Bigfoot crawl out of an interdimensional portal, don't laugh, it happens all the time, then check out Bigfoot Collectors Club on Campfire Media or wherever you get your podcasts. Bigfoot Collectors Club, you're, you're here to, to believe, believe us. Wait, is that how it goes? Campfire.